Merry Christmas. I'm Pastor Rob Myles, and welcome to the Ponder a New Podcast. And because it's Christmas, there's a, a bonus, an extra gift episode here. And, uh, well, we, we, we just had to go further because, again, some kids in the church, some youth had some questions, and I realized I didn't cover the world's oldest Christian uh, Christmas hymn. And uh, so to get us pondering, we're going to actually turn to uh, an English tune. Uh, what child is this? Why lies he in such mean estate Where rocks and ass are feeding Good Christian fear for sinners Here the silent word is pleading Nail spear shall pierce him through the cross Be born for me, for you Hail, hail, the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. And now Philippians chapter 2. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave Assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name given to Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we've had four weeks of Advent, four hymns, uh, four Gospels. It seems I should just stop right there. But I thought, well, I can't quite stop yet because, well, we have um, a confirmation program for, for middle schoolers. And, you know, they, they're reflecting on the Bible and what it means to be a Christian together. Um, and, and this last weekend, actually, the high schoolers joined them, and they sort of ended up looking at uh, a Christmas hymn. And the Christmas hymn they looked at was, What Child Is This? And when they got to this third verse, or the second verse, Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross, be born for me, for you. This really caught them off guard because when we think about Christmas, we think about peace and love and joy and all is calm, all is bright, the wonderful mysteries of God's beauty and truth in this world, grace upon grace. But here it is, and suddenly there's this acknowledgement that somehow this child, what child is this? This is the one who is to die and to rise. And this hymn connects Christmas with Good Friday and Easter. Um, some have said this poetically, that the wood of the manger becomes the wood of the cross. Others have even tied that in with Jesus' ministry, that uh, there's also sort of the wood that they made the ships uh, from as they were sailor, the fisher men. Um, and so again, uh, this connection of wood. But the idea here is that somehow that the Christmas and and the cross are, are not so, so far apart. And I'd argue that actually all four of the 
the gospel uh, writers uh, connect this. Again, what child is this maybe the best uh, sort of hymn we have in terms of most explicitly connecting the cross and, uh, and Christmas? Um, others allude to it, but yeah, the nails there. Again, not, not just the idea, but really the reality of, of what happened here on the cross. Um, and, but, but, it's, um, but it's, not, it's not the idea of this hymn writer. The the connection of the the cross and and Christmas is uh, very much in the New Testament, and uh, just to review, like the Gospels, like the Gospel of Matthew, like one of the crucial things that happens early on is that the Magi or wise men come, and then out of this Herod ends up killing all the children under two in this town, the slaughter of the innocents. Again, the, the reality of, of tragedy and death there. In uh, Luke's gospel, Luke begins with this whole reality of a census, which is about imperial power and war and taxes. Um, and then you have in the gospel of John, John the writer admits that Jesus' own did not receive him. Uh, so again, there's these foreshadowing, some like Matthew, most overt, but they're, they're throughout there. And and even in, in Mark's uh, uh, gospel, like right after Jesus is, is baptized at the very beginning, he's, he's tempted by the devil. There's, again, there's this way in which the, the cross looms over all of the gospels. Um, and, and even, again, in Matthew and Luke, that have the most sort of specific accounts of Jesus' birth. And even in Luke's gospel, sort of the most peaceful um, there's, there's something there. And even if we were to work ahead in, in Luke's gospel a little bit, um, you just start to read just the circumcision of Jesus, the naming of Jesus, and boom, right there, the, you know, the words of Simeon. You're right in back into, again, the reality of, of the connection of cross and, and Christmas together. But what I uh, want to do is, is actually draw this connection of the cross and Christmas uh, not even through the Gospels, which we could totally do. But I, I want us to um, turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians. And again, I, I love Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, if you, um, again, ever feel like I just, you know, need to read some of the Bible, you probably can pick up a Philippians and, and read all four chapters in, you know, in a good 10 to 15 minutes um, of in be struck by it. It's just, again, it's a great, it's a great short, short read. But, but that aside, um, what happens in uh, Philippians is that in this, what we call the second chapter, uh, Paul um, begins to, um, it seems as if he's waxing poetically about Jesus's, um, the, the work of Jesus, uh, becoming one of us and, um, and then dying and then rising and being exalted. But what's really going on, or what a lot of scholars think, is that uh, Paul's words here were actually not written directly by Paul. And, and what we mean is the, the letter of Philippians, everybody says, no, Paul. Paul was one of the, you know, the, the lead, or if not the, the, main, you know, the writer of it. But, but what happens is that there's a couple times in Colossians and Ephesians, um, in, in 1 Timothy, in, in Philippians, where Paul begins to um, have some words that 
are, are likely not his own in that they are were likely already being sung as part of the liturgy, the worship service of the early church. In other words, the early church from the very the early church was obviously singing the Psalms because they were mainly Jewish, but they were beginning to, you know, right away like they're they're creative, like they're thinking and they're processing and they are singing in worship, and so songs are right away coming forth. Parts of of how they want to worship together, you know, they start start saying the Lord's prayer more often, and you know, again, the sort of the formation of the early worship service. And we think that these words here that Paul says in chapter 2 were, again, actually a song or part of a liturgy that was being uh, sung in, in worship. And I want to argue not only then that it's a song, but it's actually a Christmas song because it, it talks about uh, the, the Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God, uh, being in the form of a God, but then choosing to take on the, the likeness of a human, right? That is the, the movement we call the incarnation. That's what happens at Christmas. Uh, the eternal word takes on human flesh. And uh, so here we have sort of the world's first Christmas uh, song. Um, well, I guess you could argue that the angels sing. And then maybe, okay, maybe the angels on Christmas Eve get the first song, Glory to God in the Highest. Um, but, but, but sort of the, uh, written by mortals, this is the first sort of Christmas song. And the first Christmas song uh, right away connects the, the cross uh, with the incarnation, with Christmas. Jesus is, is in the form of a God, um, but he chooses to take our form on and then is obedient unto death, um, even death on a cross. So they're, boom, like they're, they're just connected. And what I want to offer here, and and maybe even why the uh, Greek-speaking people began to feel they needed their own hymns, is for the Jewish mind, uh, the idea that, especially the first century, that God could take on human flesh was an anathema. Like, that's the blasphemy. That makes no sense that that the immortal one who says, do not make an image, no, no graven images, that ultimately, um, th- you know, that this is the one uh, who could somehow take on human flesh, right? That, that's a scandal um, to, to sort of the first century uh, Jewish mind. But for the Greco-Roman mind, it wasn't a problem that a god could take on human form. Gods all the time took on human forms. Um, you know, Zeus, Apollo, whomever, Athena, they would come down and, and they would assume human form and typically um, be beautiful and then use their form to manipulate, um, to get what they wanted, right? Um, to frankly often seduce or even rape, um, you know, humans and impregnate them. And so, what, so for the Greeks, the, the challenge uh, or the sort of the what's new here is not that somehow a god could take on human form. That was just part of the, you know, sort of the polytheistic Greco-Roman sort of world. What was unique, though, what was different was that this coming among us, this God with us, this Emmanuel, 
that this uh, God among us was actually for us. That this uh, God who was choosing to become one of us was not going to use his shape, his form, his morphe in Greek, to his or her own advantage. But rather would take on the form of a, of a slave. And uh, a slave in, in Greek culture was the, the one... It wasn't quite like the human shadow of, uh, of American-style slavery in the 18 uh, and 1700s. It was, they were the people who were, again, often servants in the household, um, but they, were, um, they did the hard work so that the master could participate in the polis, in the city-state, um, could, t- could vote, right? could have time to go and debate. Right? They provided the, the, the work so the other could have the leisure time. And, and uh, here we're saying that Jesus is um, the God who chooses to become a slave for us. You can't imagine uh, Zeus or Apollo or any of these people becoming slaves for the humans, right? That's not how it worked. And so, um, so, so, this, so again, the idea that gods are powerful, um, that is fairly, that's fine for Greco-Romans. The idea that gods are, are perfect and beautiful, that's fine for the Greco-Romans. And the fact that they could become, take human form if they so pleased for whatever pleasure trip they wanted, that was like, again, part and parcel. I mean, even Epicureans who have a much more limited view of of gods would still have said, yeah, gods can you know do whatever they want. And they will, but they just typically don't. Again, Christianity comes along and makes this radical claim, hey, not only did God become one of us, again, not a scandal to the Greeks, but that he was willing in Jesus Christ to be a servant to us. Uh, and, and what a statement that makes then about what the, the purpose of, of our life is. And that if God's orientation isn't about the fulfillment of desires, then what does that say about what our life should be about and and then it goes even further really towards the scandal of just the crucifixion um, and the resurrection Um, and if you and if you don't think that the greeks didn't like that you can just listen to the apostles creed was crucified died and was buried i mean we wanted to do everything we could in the first two centuries to make a claim that jesus had in fact died and we even say that there is the resurrection of the dead, not just the immortality of the soul. So what, what's happening here is that very early on, um, the church is using liturgy, using uh, songs to teach the faith. Um, and and the sort of the, when, the, when the Christian gospel moved from a sort of a, a Jewish sort of uh, milieu to a more uh, Hellenistic one, they were confronted by sort of different opposition. And one of the big oppositions would have been there is just no way that um, God could act, a God could actually become one of us and care about us. Um, the cross, as Paul points out in Corinthians, is a scandal in all cultures for divinity. But just this idea of, um, of an incarnate God who cares for us. Um, so anyway, so I wanted to just uh, do a little bit today here, thinking about what child is this, this haunting um, tune set to um, 
sort of an English folk tune in a, in a minor key. It's just, it's got great harmonies. It's fun to sing along with. Um, but this is one of the few sort of hymns we have um, that really connects the cross um, and, and Christmas. Um, and, and in a way, I want to argue that, that that's very biblical, um, especially uh, what happened is the, the culture moved into sort of the Greco-Roman world that would not have anticipated an incarnation that was self-emptying, to use that other word from Paul, that the God actually chose to empty themselves, not just to, to consume and then in our world today, maybe again in a world that um, is oriented towards the self, is not oriented towards others, um, and that, of course, we would assume that there would, if you had power, you know, you could do whatever you wanted with it. But uh, this makes another claim about divinity, um, ultimately about discipleship and what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, um, and yeah, just the scandal that is the Incarnation. So I hope uh, you have a good and wonderful uh, Christmas with your family, a joyous celebration of the Incarnation, and um, peace and blessings as we head into the new year. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, law, the babe, the son of Mary.